0: I'm Dave versus the machine. My name is Kyle. I'm just confused.
1: And I'm the machine.
0: This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be talking about the cinematic classic masterpiece. Masterpiece Fanny and Alexander.
2: Ooh
0: min
1: familj. Av tradition anordnar familjen en julfest för teaterns personal i Rebussén. Min enda begåvning det är att jag älskar den här lilla världen. Ja, mina vänner, nu är det dags. Allt kan ske
0: of course we have our big thank you to our patrons over on patreon their contributions help us continue this show since you know the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies plus each month we do a bonus episode over there we're in the month of december celebrating christmas but also dave i think sometimes it's good to reflect and be silent so we're gonna be talking about silence uh as the bonus episode this month over on patreon yeah yeah The original Japanese version, because we're still in 1971 over on Patreon. Yes, After last month of, I would say, Sound and Fury with Demons. Yes, because it's nice to like step back maybe and be silent for a minute. (laughs) I forgot. Yeah, time. A sense of time. Talking about time, Dave, sometimes it's also good to dream about your childhood, wrap it up into a fantasy of what you believe is going on around Mm -hmm. you with like Mm -hmm. adult problems. We need to get back to our current timeline, I think, Dave. I think we have been unstuck in time for far too long. Don't you agree?
2: Uh, Current timeline is in like trying to find our way back to 2022? Yeah, 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 right. I know
0: that the, yeah. I know the problems of 2022 are probably not what we want to step into, uh-huh. but I think we've been on spaceships, we've been time traveling to the year 1982, but I think for your own mental health, you should probably be able to hug your son again and to see your wife. I'm just, I'm
2: more upset that all this nylon I'm wearing is starting to make me chafe. It's <laughs> fucking awful. 1980s. Yeah,
0: definitely not comfortable. So, um, I don't know. Push uh, The the machine has been constructing this huge thingamajig time machine thing around us here. I'm not quite sure what its plans are. I just
2: thought we were always in a time machine. So can you just
0: push push some of those buttons Uh, we see in front of you? Okay. I'm gonna push this red one. Great. Okay. Well, there's a big timer that just is counting down, and it's the exact length of however long this episode is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's convenient. perfect. Perfect. So if you look listener at your podcast player that is the time that is now counting down to the end of the episode that is the time that is up on the screen that we're looking at i can't be any more specific than that
2: i know how old i am because when you say podcast player i thought of a physical (laughs) device oh my god
0: please come and buy our new podcast player
1: i think it's time to just end the world and be done with it
0: All right, Dave, we're going to get into this here. I'm pretty sure we are setting ourselves up for a pretty big disagreement here this week, Mm. just based on your mutterings and putterings uh, over the last few days after you watch this movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a few things I think we need to do as far as table setting goes. So number number one, what are your thoughts on Ingmar Bergman?
2: I don't know. I know the name. We watched for your other podcast. Yes. Is it Ina Kleine Nachtmusik? Smiles, oh, no. Smiles of a Summer
0: Night. Oh uh, no, Smiles of a Summer Night. Yes, eventually it gets turned into the musical A Little Night Music. It was... Uh, One of my favorite shows of all time.
2: Right, right, because you're a nerd. So I, uh, I thought it was interesting. I really... Some parts of it really st- stuck with me. I liked a lot of the way he wants to discuss human nature, but of his... Ouvra, I've actually not seen the big ones. I don't know why. Uh, Seven Seals. Yeah, I have Seal seen
0: Seven Seal, Persona, Wild Strawberries, uh, Scenes from Marriage. Yeah, they're all on my
2: wish list on Criterion, but I haven't pressed play on any of them. Yeah. And they're short. They're not even long. They're not three hours. And, well,
0: I would say, yeah, most of his are actually two hours or less. Yeah. There's a couple of them that are the three hour mark. Like
2: persona's but, only, isn't it 60 minutes? 90 minutes, minutes I 90? think. Yeah. yeah. And Seven Seals is also... Not long, as we were told in one of our YouTube reviews, if I don't know who Maureen O'Hara is.
0: Oh, right. (laughs) Then I'm obviously unqualified review movies. <laughs> you are putting a much more positive spin on this than uh I think you're allowed to, Dave. From my recollection, you turned out not liking uh Smiles of a Summer Night all that much. Uh yeah, I don't remember what we talked about. And and I this is going to be my thesis, thesis. leading into our disagreement, okay. just to lay this out. Okay. I think you have a fundamental misunderstanding of uh I think Ingmar Bergman's intent. Intent for this his films. Because I remember very uh, plainly, mm. you talking about it's like, oh, it's so hard to engage with this su- uh, su- uh, the so called comedy.
2: Oh yeah, because it's it's wasn't so dour funny. Yeah. and it's
0: so like yeah. Swedish and oppressive. I've rewatched *Smiles of a Summer Night* since we watched it together. It's it could become one of my favorites. I think it's super funny. I think it's a really really funny. I think movie. that
2: says a lot more about you mm-hmm. than me, Kyle.
0: Uh, I think it says more about mm, you, but sure.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I've been watching your letterboxed. Uh, oh sorry, sequ- uh, not sequence. Your letterbox Diary. Journey? And yeah. Uh, yeah, you need to get out and do stuff in the real world. Some watching some very strange <laughs> films every day.
0: Uh, are you talking about my recent viewing of the Alligator People? <laughs> <laughs> it's on Disney Plus, Dave. <laughs> what isn't my actual relationship with Ingmar Bergman is very similar to yours. This is only the second movie I've watched, which is basically Smiles of a Summer Night, which is fairly early in his yeah. career. Yeah. Even though I think he made 10 movies by that point, but still pretty early in his career. I think career. it was before
2: he broke into America. Yes,
0: yeah, right? so it was before his seventh seal, yeah, even. Like it was true. it's pretty early in his career. And this movie, which is basically the last movie he ever releases. Quote unquote movie. We'll okay. get into that in a moment. But so it's like the two to the two ends of his career. Yeah. And so I don't have really much context for the middle part. No. But I like I know the name. I know that he's considered one of the best filmmakers of all time. But for some reason. I think I had it in my head, and I think I've talked about this uh, a few times when we've talked about non-American, non-Canadian directors. Where sometimes I get like this idea of what their film filmography is, mm. and for the longest time, for Ingmar Bergman, I honestly thought it was very slow, dreary. Oh, just because of the. Pictures of Seven Seal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Fatalistic yeah. films. I think just because you see those images from the Seventh Seal. I'm like, oh, no. Like, do I want to commit to watching 10 movies no. that or are, are that? At least all of a summer I broke me out of that. I'm like, oh, OK. So he does some different things. And this is interesting. It's not it, it, what I thought. Just as a counterexample, because I'm going to yell at Dave later on. So you, so people can send in mail to me and <laughs> I yell even at me. I haven't shared my opinions yet. Oh, wow. I know. We're raring. I know. I'm He's just raring saying.
2: for a fight. Get a little busy, start doing stuff, and now you just want to fight. It's me. my
0: thing with uh, with Fellini. I have the hardest roadblock to get into him. Mm. I've watched five of his films, and not a single one of them have I been like, yeah, this was amazing. Yes. This is great. I'm like, uh, I guess like there's a couple things that are interesting, but I don't know. He's just not one of my favorite directors, and people. Um, get mad at me when I say that I'm not the biggest Fellini fan. Well, Ingmar Bergman seems to be someone that I might uh, really, really enjoy if I explored more of his work. We
2: got we got to push back a little bit on what's the Japanese one? Yeah,
0: Ozu for Tokyo Story. No,
2: the one before that in '71.
0: Oh, throw your books away, rally in the streets.
2: Yes, I think it's the nature of being avant-garde or culture mm, forming, forming, and also kind of rebelling against set cues. Sure. So I guess it's a matter of whether we're in the mood to look at someone who's trying to break norms or not. And in which case for film, it's, yeah, not having a narrative, fucking around with the plot, using camera angles that intentionally don't work, or like in your mm. books, using monochrome uh, color schemes to just kind of like sure. fuck up your eyes. If you're in the mood for that, or if you're studying film, that must be such a powerful experience. But mm-hmm. if you're just two guys who watch too many movies,
0: I don't know, Kyle, It's hard, right? I mean, it it can be. I mean, but there's some films... I think it just comes down to... I mean, this is so cliche to say. I think it does come down to story to to a degree which is i'll use citizen kane everyone always talks about like oh how groundbreaking it was it showed the the ceiling for the first time ever in a movie who cares I, I'm, I'm being facetious but like, that's yeah. basically what they say. like all these interesting camera movements and all this it's stuff that he does so it's like sure you can talk about that and it's interesting to talk about that but at its core i also find that a very engaging movie yes. narrative to watch yes. so it's like i'm not also being like but like the threw the camera down a well and then he turned to green and it's like, great, yeah. but it's not interesting to watch. So,
2: well, since we already talked about it, we, we talked about in the demons episode, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you think about that movie, it makes you want to find out what's next. And I think that's important right, right. in a film. Uh, we've had a little bit of a talk about challenging uh, how we represent ourselves. And we've had debates where you keep telling me that plot and narrative are secondary to filmmaking. But I... I honestly need, I'm like a... A donkey. I need to be led to the water. Like, I I don't really like kind of sitting there twiddling my thumbs in too much atmosphere. It's why Terrence Malick and Wong Kar-wai have never sure. been, I've never been the staunch advocates for. Uh, unless someone says, uh, what do you think about their cinematography? I'm like, it's fucking crazy. Like, they do things that uh, yeah, are it's amazing. so amazing.
0: What do you think of their movies? So boring. But do I want to watch someone dance in a field and drink dewdrops yeah. for an hour so and a half? Not really. Yeah.
1: That's all I want to watch. I mean, I mean, I guess what I mean
0: by that, though. I think we're probably arguing the same thing that's to a degree, but I, but I think of a movie like the before trilogy, like, does anything happen in those movies? Like, sort of, life, I guess. Like, Kyle, you could, life. You, could, you <laughs> can just, like, these two people have a conversation for 90 yes. minutes. Like, that's basically what those three movies are. Yep. But I also find them some of the most gripping conversations that I want to be a part of. So- you know what's
2: interesting is I find... That I like the second one right now because I'm that age. I find the third one obnoxious because I think it's only like Hella really likes the third one, but I think it's because I don't like watching people who just hate being in love with each other. You know, like that tension. I, mm. I just can't handle that stress. And the first one I liked the most when I was young, because they're having conversations. Well, the that's, a,
0: that's what I was going to say. Totally agree with you. I'm, I'm, I think I'm pro, I always forget the way to go. It's sunrise. Sunrise. Is the second one, sunrise, right? Sunrise, yeah. Before sunrise, which till this day has the best ending of any movie ever. In my opinion, the first one I actually watched when I was almost, in my, I think I was in my late twenties. Oh, that's pretty late. So okay. I was already cresting past them. Like, Mm. "Mm, this guy's a little bit full of himself. (laughs) Too much youthful romance. Yes. If you watch it as a young person, I'm like, I'm I'm totally sure you'd be totally on his side. I'm like, "Mm, that's not really what love is, but okay.
2: (laughs) I remember watching that, I think in the theaters... And I I don't remember Mm -hmm. picking a side, I just loved, you know, that youthful sense of romance where it's, uh, you know, ill fate, it's the Romeo and Juliet thing. It's like, you don't need to know that they're going to be happy at the end. It's just incredible watching these two people connect, entwine, and then that's the beauty of that drama is at the end, you're like, I don't know what the fuck happened. We can imagine, you know, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. The second one's the same, it's beautiful. Like, as they walk, Mm -hmm. it's good. Perfect.
0: It's good. Disney, fucking make a good movie, man. Well, I was going to say, we can all agree, though, <laughs> that Julie Delpy's best role was, of course, in Avengers Age of Ultron, <laughs> where she shows up for 30 oh, seconds man. as the ballet teacher, and I'm there in the theater being like, what the fuck is Julie Delpy doing in this getting movie? A paycheck. <laughs> and then, like, I guess getting paid for her 30-second oh, yeah. appearance in that movie. How about Fanny and Alexander? This is the movie. Have you heard of this movie before? Do you have know. any type of familiarity with it? I think... I I don't think so.
2: I think that there are so many two-name movies that Mm. I don't think I know anything about this film. I will question whether, yeah, like Harold and Maude has better recognition for me than this. And then I might conflate the two until we started watching it, presumably. and Otis? (laughs) When I pressed play on this thing, I've never heard of it, so...
0: I've definitely heard of it, but that's about it. I don't I I didn't I I don't know anything about what this movie is even about, really. Mm-hmm. I've heard of Fanny and Alexander for years. Probably just tangentially in people writing about Ingmar Bergman. I'm sure Roger Ebert mentioned it in some sort of review and of I
2: essays just on it, yeah.
0: Memory locked it and be <laughs> like, Oh, Fanny and Alexander, that sounds important. So I'm excited to watch a movie that is probably to contain the same amount of runtime for both Fanny and Alexander. Oh yeah,
2: right? I mean, if you're gonna put both names on the title, it's
0: probably about both characters. Exactly, this is a long movie, so I'm sure like the first hour and a half Easily. is all Fanny. You have to. And the last hour and a half, it's all Alexander. I mean, it has to be.
2: Why else would you name a movie <laughs> Fanny and Alexander?
0: That'd be like going and watching Harold and Maud, and it's just Harold <laughs> for like the first you know 90 minutes and then Maud shows up. All right, well, this is what we're going to do then, everyone. Dave and I are going to go off and thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to be having a deep conversation about Fanny and Alexander, the both of them. Can I tell you how broken my brain is, Dave?
2: Uh, I mean,
0: I suppose you could, but I wouldn't trust it because your brain is broken. There's that song. I think it's from the band. That's like, take a load off, Fanny.
1: you know that song? Yeah. Are you familiar
0: with that? As I was watching this movie, I don't know why that kept going, circling in my brain. It's like, take a load off, Fanny. Because she's not in the movie, you see. So, she's taking a load off behind the scenes. And I felt that maybe that Uh, would have helped this be elevated for you because I know you're super down on this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Where it'd be like that recurring in the soundtrack would be like, oh, well, that's where Fanny is. She's taking a load off. You
2: wanted the band in early 20th century. Early 20th century Sweden. <laughs> Singing. Good. No, that would have fit quite well. Quite well.
0: <laughs> Ingmar Bergman loves the band. You heard her first, folks. You know, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. I'm not ready, so I'm going to vamp here for a minute. I don't know what that means. Because, you know, of course, we have some lovely sponsors, Mm -hmm, Dave. mm -hmm. We love our sponsors. Sponsors are what make the world go round. Um, And this week, on this very episode... At this very time, this episode of Kylan Day vs. the Machine is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. And you know, life as a business owner can be hectic, to say the least. Alberta Blue Cross understands that because they offer flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. Even better, you can let your staff enroll and manage their coverage at any time and on any device. That makes life easier for them and for you. You've got this when it comes to group coverage for your small business, and Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. To learn more and explore your options, head on over to ab.bluecross.ca.
2: Ooh, a nice dramatic pause. I mm-hmm. like it. Well, uh, I'm going to be lazy this week, Kyle, and I'm going to let our next sponsor talk to you about themselves, uh, but they're called Connect First Credit Union, and Kyle, just roll a clip.
0: I'll put a 10-second a, a pause right now just to... <laughs> Emulator. Right, right. Do you ever feel like just a number, a digit, a denominator, a decimal, another cog in the big bank machine waiting on hold, online, never on time, and always on your dime? Like your worth is only calculated by your net worth. In a world full of numbers, it's nice to know there's a place where you're not one. Connect First Credit Union. Bank on a brighter future all right dave we have we locked in worked through it. this yeah. this movie yeah. um in a moment i'll reveal how i actually did watch this movie because we did not watch it together huh but okay. uh, we have to do a scenario here first right so dave let's say that you have taken your family on a vacation to sweden sweden yeah
2: and we're all like looking up at all these tall norsemen you
0: yes. want to see the mountains In Sweden? I don't know. the mountains, yes. Yes. You're going to Rotvik? I have uh, no idea. Fjord? Yeah. And um, as you're strolling down one of the fjords. So, as you do, which is what you do. A young, wide eyed boy mm -hmm. charges at you. Only six foot three, yes. Only six foot three. (laughs) (laughs) This young child thrusts out of his hand he's actually oh. wearing a little sailor uniform yes of course And he thrusts it's at you normal. this vhs copy of fanny und alexander mm, mm, nice. and uh he asks you in swedish what is this movie about oh that was a mistake yeah it was awful it was bad <laughs> I, I, I thought in my mind i'm gonna go for it and i'm like i immediately regretted it <laughs> anyways i have been you-
2: called racist recently so a uh, way to uh, way to uh put that mm. in there
0: i'm white i'm allowed to do that <laughs> So Dave, what would you answer this young wide-eyed sailor boy about what Fanny Alexander is about?
2: Uh, First, if this is a VHS, I would say that's a large box of VHS that you're carrying. It's a good thing you're six foot three and only eight years old. Yeah, theatrical cut, I think is an important distinction to make. Not that I sat down and watched the big one, but this is, it's a story about how a boy watches his family kind of come apart in the adventure and the... uh, hard times the hardship that he goes through before finding love in his family
0: again sure i guess that's uh that's basically a (laughs) good three films in this movie yeah i mean there's yeah we could spend too many (laughs) diversions and rabbit holes going down the the minutiae here so what were what were your thoughts after you watched all three hours and eight minutes of this so i
2: i think I was very underwhelmed i i suspect after i finished watching it i read the wikipedia and mm-hmm. I suspect that if I sat down and watched its original intended five hour cut, this is probably one of the greatest narrative, like War and Peace type of thing, where mm-hmm. it's just so wide in scope. And even Ingmar Bergman apparently was quoted as disliking this theatrical cut because it was only set up to promote, I think, to film festivals
0: or something. So, or producers. Yes, was, or- it, uh, uh, yeah, basically, from what I understand, the initial concept was this is going to be my final film. And then it got sprung and so it's like, I'm going to make this a miniseries. He had done this before with a couple of his other movies, made the miniseries, and then made a movie version of it. And just how things worked, the movie actually came out first before the miniseries aired. And I think people were looking at it as this, hey, this is going to like entice Below you to go up. and watch yeah. like the full version. Because what, what I've read, again, as I also have not watched the five-hour miniseries version, what is removed is a lot of the fantasy elements.
2: Yes, and this is the problem. Right? And this is why I was underwhelmed with it.
1: Yes. If you're going to have a fantastical premise like a robot starting the apocalypse, you need to make sure you introduce that early into the narrative so that people care deeply about it.
2: You know, it starts off and it's discombobulating, just like uh, the other one. It's hard to get up to speed with who all the characters are, how they're related, who we're supposed to follow in the narrative, because there are three adult siblings who are in various states of fucking ruining their lives from wealth there's a great matriarch Look, the acting is great uh the matriarch the grandma mother is kind of underpinning the whole story by um just being this stable character in this weird aristocratic culture which i also don't understand like oh yeah we should allow men to have sex with their maids because it's important for a relationship like that, that stuff's weird and then uh, when the big trauma happens i didn't even know whose husband died At the playhouse. (laughs) Mm. I didn't know that he was Alexander's dad. uh, Until they got to the funeral. And then as they go into that second story. Of um, the mom falling in love with the uh, crazy Christian pastor. I was like oh well now I'm engaged. Because this is. I've seen this narrative before. Of having to suffer through this big change. And then in the escape. All of a sudden we go into this fantasy film. And the way it's cut together is so Uh, uneven for me that it actually got not annoying but I just couldn't keep up with it and I although when I was watching I kept thinking why wasn't this in the rest of the film I've spent two hours watching this sort of drawn out dialogue heavy drama and now all of a sudden Azazel shows up as this you know, mm-hmm. uh, androgynous, transgender, almost like manipulative demon. And you're like, what the fuck is this character hiding in this room? And then they're doing those stupid cuts, uh, trying to show his imagination of what's happening in this house, except the way that it's cut, it repeats. We don't even know if the the dying aunt did this on purpose. It's just a mess. And then by the time the uh, one philandering brother does his big soliloquy, I just checked out, man. I couldn't even understand what he was talking about, you know, trying to bookend that this narrative is about parents wanting the best for something. I, I couldn't even understand it, Kyle. So uh, I saw all of the touchstones that people would love as a filmmaker. It's well shot, it's well acted, but I felt like I was missing something and it turns out I probably was,
0: you know? So I just, I couldn't, I couldn't connect to it. So my analogy for, for this, I always use is, um, is heavy metal music. This is a, sorry, a, a, an analogy for myself, which is I fully understand when people put it on that there is a a mastery of like the guitar rhythms of even of the singing, like there's real talent behind it, but I have, I cannot stand listening to it. (laughs) Like I understand that they're good and like, I, I would never call them bad musicians, but I personally do not enjoy the music that they're making. Is it, is it that sort of thing where it's like, you understand that there's, why and how it is good it's just not for you or are you saying that it's just a failure of the artistry itself no i
2: think i think that's fair i mean uh, when you said heavy metal all i can think about is rush and fish
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) well fish isn't really heavy metal
2: no but this is my point it wasn't heavy metal music i've listened to heavy metal music i've listened to punk and gothy Mm -hmm. shit it's just when you find fans of fucking rush and fish they will go ad nauseum about the technical craftsmanship Mm. of Neil Peart or any of these fucking guys who are doing things that human beings shouldn't be able to do. Four
0: drum machines, Dave.
2: Four. And then I listen to him like, I find this music annoying, to be honest with you, but I will, uh, you know, concede the point that they're doing things I've never heard before. I just don't care for it. I think there's a little bit of that, but I honestly think it's not Ingmar Bergman. It's not this film. I think it's the cut. And I think that it just, just kept me pointing in different directions too much. Uh, so I just couldn't, I couldn't stay in the pocket.
0: So I have to admit on how I watched this movie because I do think it impacted it both positively and negatively in the way that I watched it. I basically had to watch this as a mini series just based on my week. I had to fit this in into very specific time frames. So I watched this over five different viewings. Oh wow! So like thirty-five to sometimes forty-minute long this chunks. Is why your rating so high?
2: I saw I read your thing on Letterboxd. Okay. Okay.
0: So it, makes it over sense. like, I, and I think it was over four different days <laughs> that I was doing that. You know
2: what I did, Kyle? I What's sat that? on a couch in the middle of a Monday afternoon for three yeah. and a half hours thinking I'll do what you did. Right. And realizing I better just finish this fucking thing because <laughs> I don't think I can come back to it.
0: <laughs> See, and I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> like that's how I wanted to experience it. Yeah. It just did wasn't working. And so every time I had to stop, I'm like, I really want to continue watching yes, this. I actually yes. am invested in what is happening. I think it's
2: th- not. Yeah. He's a good filmmaker. I just didn't. Yeah. I keep going. Keep going. So,
0: yeah. So I was like totally in it. And then I kept trying to outguess the film, which is like a bad way to watch it. Because again, to, to talk about the elephant in the room that we kind of alluded to before the break, the one piece of negative criticism that I totally agree with. I have no idea why this is called Fanny and Alexander. I kept waiting for there to be a Fanny story. Yeah. That's even how it was going to wrap up or something like that. Like she comes in and does something and she's really not that important in this movie. like She is to a a, a very small degree of like Alexander's story that is really the big chunk of this movie. For a movie called Fanny and Alexander, I was just expecting there to be a lot more to do with her. This is the whole clue problem again. It's like, if you name your movie after a character, I just assume that they're going to be like a major character.
2: I don't know. Again, maybe she plays a better role maybe. in the full five hour. Maybe she has a larger anchor in the fantasy world. But I will say that when she's in it, particularly... Uh, in the middle section, when they're being mm-hmm. e- eventually tortured by this pastor, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, her
2: being so detached and kind of uh, strong-willed is actually quite mesmerizing. And you're like, oh, this is where Fanny's finally coming to this right. film, and then she's never in the movie again. So mm-hmm. I, I, feel like maybe, and if a nerd listens to this and wants to kind of expound on this, because I'm honestly I can't imagine myself sitting down for five and a half hours and
0: watching this again. Well, you just watch the five individual episodes. They're <laughs> they're designed to be watched. I know, but I don't.
2: God, I have so much other garbage TV to oh, watch.
0: see, And it makes me want to do it. So maybe I'll do it maybe yeah, next I mean, year I'll. in the new year sometime.
2: But uh, I hope that she has a bigger role because otherwise this is up there with dumb named movies. We should make a new list of movies that ought not to have been named what they were
0: After named. After a character.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it's too bad. beyond that, I really love how this film opens up. I, I, I think you called it in a text that you sent to me. I didn't want to get into it because it was—it would just devolve into like 75 texts of us sending it back and forth. This
2: is what I'm saying. You're so busy, you won't respond to me
0: anymore. It's embarrassing. That's right, because yeah. I knew it's going to start an argument. <laughs> you described this movie as melancholy, and I actually very fundamentally disagree with that definition. Okay. Because melancholy is like an overbearing sadness, and yes. I think there's too much joy that's in this movie for it to fully... Meaning to something that would be called melancholy. And I think that first part goes a long way with that. I, I really do love how this movie essentially opens from Alexander's point of view. He's under the table, crawls out from underneath, anything. And we're kind of thrust into the story of. I mean, the way, way you're pacing it, how- it
2: sounds like so upbeat. It's like 15 minutes. of crawling on the fucking floor, mm. curled up in a ball alone yeah. with no family. You don't. And you think that's joyous
0: well when the family gets in there they're literally, they're literally dancing they're and singing they're ignoring him no that's oh, at the Christmas right that's
2: another 30 minutes later
0: right you, I, you're, no you're 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 thinking of it in way too long time i don't
2: know cuz like so he does the he does the thing the grandma comes in she's crying cuz she's depressed mm-hmm. uh, when the stage play opens uh, yeah they're trying to perform but that in itself is quite a quiet and compressed place where even the speech is a guy having existential crisis about how he fits into the world anymore
0: i I just find the existential crisis (laughs) funny i don't know maybe i just share the sense of humor of sweden because i found you're developing one with it because i when we
2: first talked about the other film i can't remember the name now summer nights i think you also agree that it wasn't on the comedy side and i think over the last year perhaps you're just picking up the cues that um, that might be it
0: because i do think that the the uncles especially are just pitched as buffoons like they're they're pitched as buffoons and like bloviators and like ridiculous people like this totally reminds me of a like a charles dickens novel which yes. terrible awful things happen to kids in charles dickens novels yeah and everyone around those characters are just so over the top in either kindness or evil that you can't really look at them as like oh these are realistic characters that i'm watching It's wrapped up in too much high, I don't know, uh, overact, not overacting, but it's just like they're big characters. So I I just find a lot of them either buffoonish or odd. And I just I don't know, I just uh, uh, found that engaging to watch as this family kind of slowly breaks apart over time. And that's where the sadness does come in to an extent, that middle portion with with the bishop and his like overbearingness.
2: Well, I find the philandering brother and the bishop for sure right? Mm -hmm. They're meant to be cartoon characters. They're meant to be uh, so extreme. There's a clown and there's a demon or a devil. But the other two brothers, I just couldn't, I just couldn't, you know the alcoholic one who abuses his german wife i was like i don't even know why right. you're in this movie just to be an asshole it doesn't come back it's not it part of the back, story no. and then of course the father who dies i mean that's joyous and becomes a ghost it's important and i i actually like his performance as he appears in and out of alexander's life uh, both to try to give omen but also to just be part of his experience of grief so i think that's a beautiful thing but i don't know it's a little uneven for me.
0: I think that's where I was a little bit more easily swayed by the fantastical elements that come in in that last third of the movie, much more so than at any other time, because the ghost has been hanging around for an hour and a half. I'm like, okay, so this is
1: sure, sure. I yeah. can
0: expect there to this this can go yes, pretty far gonna... afield now if we're getting if we're introducing ghosts into the narrative. So well, I wasn't was... as uh, thrown off uh, by that ending as you were.
1: I think every movie should have a ghost. Well, I. I, I don't mind there being a fantastic And
2: I was kind of expecting having watched, uh, again, shit, Summer Nights. What is it called again? Smile of
0: a Summer Night. Smile.
2: I keep thinking Ina Kleinum knocked music. So in that film too, he leans on the fantastic, like the, the dinner banquet scene, the way it's shot. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so I am expecting that kind of level of uh, drama. I, my problem at the end with Azazel is just, it got scaled up too quickly and too almost visually, literally- by the end, you know, the ghost I can understand, uh, not just as a metaphor, but he is not part of the corporeal world. He doesn't interact with anybody. Even mm-hmm. He only gets a voice like two hours into it. And even then, it's only when Alexander's life is so traumatic that he ha- kind of has to speak to his mother to, to kind of assay all of these uh, fears they all have that this boy is going to essentially fucking die. But when he's rescued, as soon as that rescue scene happens and the Jewish moneylender does the yell and there's the flash and there appears to be fake dead bodies in the bedroom. And I was just like, what the fuck is going on right now? Are they marionettes? I don't I don't even know what's happening because he didn't carry anything up there. And then they're in this like opulent puppet shop and they're in this back room where they're not allowed to t- Like, I was just like, this is gone so far off kilter (laughs) all at once. And then I thought, you know, they've done the color thing where we went from these gray drab, austere uh, surroundings, right, to show the Mm -hmm. Christian um, hell escape. And now we're in this red, bright, opulent puppet maker's place, and then they have this door. (laughs) And you're like, you do not fucking go in this door. And then the brother, everybody's touching this boy. It was getting a little death in Venice for me at some point. He's getting touched a lot, Kyle. What's the Azazel's brother's name? That's not Isaac. It's Bible story. I just don't remember who the two angels are. I can't
0: remember all their names. I'm sorry. They're all Swedish names. I don't remember. No,
2: those are Jewish names because it's right, an right, allegory right. To, uh, to the fallen angels. Anyways, it doesn't matter.
0: I, I think part of the context is both you and I don't have are the intervening 35 years between the two movies that we watched because yes. apparently... If you do read any contemporary reviews, like the recurring thing is like, oh, it's Ingmar Bergman up to his usual tricks again with Mm. like this magical realism and all this other stuff and like flashbacks to his childhood. And this is um, the
2: type of film he
0: makes. I'm sure if we had seen, you know, 10 other Ingmar Bergman films, we're like, oh, yeah, this is him just doing his Ingmar Bergman thing again. It'd be like watching Bottle Rocket and then going straight to the French dispatch and you're like, (laughs) what the fuck? Like, what is happening to Wes Anderson? Fine.
2: I don't know. Uh, yeah. Bottle rocket. Yeah, that,
0: that's a good one. <laughs> uh, for me, I think, I think I wrote it down. I hope I did. Is the grandmother says this thing, I forget, like at the two and a half hour mark. It's pretty late into the movie. But the one big thing that she says is oh, one is old and a child at the same time. And I think that that is partly the thesis of this movie is that there's adults acting like children, children having to act like adults and kind of that meeting in the middle.
2: Philosophical line through it and the observations on human nature are great. This is a type of film that's steeped in some intellectual discourse. There mm-hmm. it's not about like I'm not saying this movie's dumb. All right, it's not. It's not Well, there is farting on the stairs though, so well, you know, even that part is so weird. But but it's to the point, right? That none of the adults that are in this are respectable. You know, they all make these fucking selfish brutal decisions that have impact on everybody and it's the kids that have to grow up quickly to face at least alexander does to face mm-hmm. uh, this trauma that's uh, put in front of him but it's like we talked about the beginning i need um i need this narrative pull to kind of help me fight through this this movie does have it but i just this is why after i read i had to wikipedia because i felt so confused at the end and when i read at least how it's synopsized in the write-up, I'm like, this would make so much more sense in a five-hour format because I—I sure. I bet I haven't seen it, of course—that they'll introduce these fantastic elements and like this uh, Jewish mythology underneath it throughout the entire film, instead of kind of springing up on you in like the final third or final quarter. And I loved the grandmother. I think she probably would have played a more impactful grounding element. She, she is. She's great in this. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, her her melancholy, honestly, Kyle, about wondering where her life... No, but she talks about it like she's looking at her kids and she's sure. widowed and she's looking at her grandchildren and she's starting to understand or trying to talk about the role of you know wealth and happiness and all of these things uh it's somber man she's not she's not overjoyed where she is and even when she's in Maybe, her little at house at the same
0: time what you're glossing over a little bit is the fact that there's also the guy that is trying to hit on her that she continually <laughs> doesn't even realize that she's rebuffing him because she's Acting all sad, and he's like, "Oh, I can't even cry. I must drink more cognac." Like, I, I do feel like for sure, it's, it's knee pretty serious conversation he's having, but it's also tempered by being like, "There's some pretty foolish behavior that's going on here at the same time."
2: If you say so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that this is a laugh riot. Um, yeah, I'm just I imagining say this.
2: you slapping your knee watching Ingmar. I was actually your- the first hour. I
0: was pre- I was laughing. Pr- a- pretty right early to be honest with you oh, that man. was pretty great especially that guy the philanderer guy yeah who, he's like, hilarious gets so butthurt over her saying that she he's funny he's like how dare you call me funny yeah it's like but you are you're a ridiculous man <laughs> like the Berg, Bergmanites. i don't know who the fans of ingmar bergman uh do agree with you to that extent dave like that they do consider the miniseries to be the it's best version of right. this story Must so be. the snyder cut the Bergman cut. Yeah. The Snyder cut. Well, I was also saying like Bergman kind of, I mean, I'd have to do a much more deeper research on like world cinema and maybe even in North America. But like, did he invent prestige TV? Because that's... Like, <laughs> Basically, what he was doing back yeah, can you in the Imagine 1982? this on
2: TV; it would be amazing, right? <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: I, although BBC, I mean, honestly, it's just North America that produces short-term garbage. I mean, I I'm pretty sure, like Asia, like is there a K drama where an episode is less than an hour and a half long? I don't know, right? It's it, there's more of a intent behind storytelling instead of worrying about whether you're gonna get blacklisted by the FBI for being anti-American. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I I I think we're corrupted by shit media honestly, and our expectations of what a TV show is supposed to encompass.
0: In North America in 1982, there it, it just is not what it is today. Like there was a clear division between TV and movies. Right. And very rarely, like super rarely could you go between the two of them. It was basically unheard of in the 70s, 80s, and really into the 90s until like The Sopranos came on. It was like, oh, TV can be as good as movies. Cinematic, right, right.
1: Yeah. But HBO isn't TV.
0: Let's do some backstory here then, Dave. So this movie opened up on December 17th, 1982, just in time for Christmas. Uh, it is rated 4.3 mm-hmm. on Letterboxd. Although, so as we learned at with
2: Blade Runner, we don't know what
0: they're rating, right? Or is this well, just actually, the no. On Letterboxd, you can rate for the miniseries separately. Oh, from okay. Which uh, then calls to mind is like why can't they have the multiple versions of Blade Runner? Then mm-hmm. I feel like they should be able. Just to. just out of curiosity, did you look at the rating for the TV version? I didn't I thought it was higher though. I th- okay. I think the miniseries is, is higher. But I mean, you can double check. So it's rated four point three on Letterboxd. It sits at the number sixty four position on its top two hundred and fifty movies of all time. It has an eight point one on IMDb. This is where I was so confused because that rating would make it be on the top 250, but I cannot find it in the list. So I don't know why it doesn't show up on their list. But regardless,
2: I'll just say, physically, uh, visually. So the TV version is 4.5 on Letterbox. Yeah, if we're so gonna use this as a Bible. Two more. But you me. know what's well, you know it's interesting from a visual perspective on the graph is yeah. this uh, bump at three stars. Yeah. Whereas uh, the TV one is literally just a bell curve going right, up. Right.
0: Right. Actually, sorry, not to derail this even more. I find looking at the curve so fascinating on Letterboxd because most films group around a certain thing, yeah. right? So it's like, let's say three is the highest point. So m- most people give it a three and then to either side will have usually the second and third biggest. Yeah. But there's some movies that don't. And those yeah. are the ones I find fascinating where it's like polarized people will give it a two and then the second biggest rating is a five. I'm like, whoa, what? Why is there such a big divide between <laughs> what there's... people think?
2: A lot of it's the internet, so there's a lot of stupid yeah. people who'll write a review saying this shit and give it five stars because they think it's funny. So stats are interesting.
0: The, the best ones though to do are the ones that are, are basically flat because every rating is basically even. <laughs> Those are the most fascinating movies. There's movies so, like that? Yes. Uh, the one that I can think of off the top of my head is Showgirls. Oh, Showgirls is either The worst movie you've ever seen, or the best uh, like satire you've ever watched. Like, there's no, and then it like all falls in. There's no consensus over like how you're going to rate this movie. One star. I've never seen Showgirls, so I can't, can't give it. Um, anyways, to continue on, it has a hundred on Metacritic, Rotten Tomatoes. It also has a hundred percent from 41 critics, 94 percent from 10,000 plus users. It's available on DVD and Blu ray, currently available to purchase or rent on iTunes or YouTube. And in Canada, you can stream it on the Criterion channel. Its budget was six million U.S. dollars. I have no idea what it made at the box in office. Kroner, like mm-hmm. there's some figures that it made six point seven million dollars, but I don't know if that's just in Sweden. If that is a worldwide gross, I have no idea.
2: Also, well, it would have been publicly funded if it's a TV show, so it wouldn't have needed a
0: box office, right? No, it did. It was not publicly funded. It uh. actually was funded by a bunch of different organizations, apparently.
2: Yeah. No. What I mean is, TV shows don't need a box office to recoup their mm-hmm. costs, right? So I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I think you're stats right. Yeah, yeah. Would
0: be skewed. So, its plot description is: two young Swedish children in the 1900s experienced the many comedies and tragedies of their lively and affectionate theatrical family. I was close. Pretty I close. Pretty close. Yeah, I wasn't that off? I Dave, know. I have such bad news for you. <laughs> There's no tagline for this movie. So, you he know, he should have, done? Should have played game.
2: the game, Kyle. He missed a huge opportunity. Yeah. Where it would have been D, there is no tagline. It does start,
0: though, and this is going to be butchering a bunch of people's Let's do names. It. I
2: cannot wait to hear you
0: speak. Pernilla speech. Alwyn mm-hmm. as Fanny. Mm mm-hmm. hmm. Bertel Gouve as Alexander. Here we go. Yua Frothing. Yua Frothing mm-hmm. as Emily. Yeah. And Jan. Mangio as the bishop. Those are the four I'm going to highlight here, at least. Mm-hmm. Both Fanny and Alexander BC never acted again, yeah. from what I could see. And then I think Emily, uh, their mother, was in a bunch of Bergman stuff. She actually played "quote unquote" his mother a few times in different things because apparently there is unofficial sequels to this movie that are not what? billed as sequels, but were basically sequels to from Fanny different and directors.
2: Or from different him. directors, oh, yeah, okay, okay. Uh, so just, one
0: of them written by Ingmar Bergman, but was not directed by him,
2: like riffing off the idea or something weird.
0: And did you read on who the bishop was supposed to be?
2: No, I honestly have not looked at the backstory, yeah. Then man. we'll get into it here in a moment. Was it supposed to be Max von Siddo? Tell me it was
0: Max von Siddo. So, cinematography is by Sven Nykvist. Sven Nykvist, mm-hmm. his top four are this movie, The Sacrifice, from 1986, Mm, uh, which is a Tarkovsky movie, I think. Okay. Um, Cries and Whispers, from 1972, another Ingmar Bergman, and The Unbearable Lightness of Being, from 1988. Written and directed by Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman was tired. He was so, (laughs) so tired. Okay. He's been making films steadily since the late 40s, and very much like a Clint Eastwood, or Woody Allen, or Robert Altman, He was churning these out. Like if you go into his filmography, he was basically directing a movie every year for 40 years. (laughs) And sometimes there was two per year. So like he was just churning them out. Mm -hmm. Now, because he's so tired, he announces Van Alexander, my final film. It's gonna be my last movie. I'm too old. I don't want to be on film sets anymore. I'm done. It'll be inspired by my childhood. And he's been quoted as saying about his own childhood, it was difficult to differentiate between what was fantasy and what was considered real. If I made an effort, I was perhaps able to make reality stay real. But, for instance, there were ghosts and specters. What should I do with them? And the sagas, were they real? I have no idea what that means, but it kind of shows you his state of mind, I think.
2: Okay. okay. <laughs> I was listening to Gabor Mate just released a book. so I watched an interview with him on mm-hmm. YouTube. But, uh, he- presents this idea, I think the new book's called, like dealing with the idea of normalcy. You know, I would talk a lot about this word coding, but I think it's the same idea that we're drawn to the idea that there's something that is normal. So we hear a statement like this and we're like, well, that doesn't make any sense because fantasy and reality are different. I think that uh, if we were looking at it, I, I don't know about you, but I know that if I sit down with my siblings and we discuss what I would consider traumatic event, There are three experiences of it, and they often do not uh, correlate that well. And if one of them, like mine, for example, tends to be more fantastical, I may not remember there being demons and ghosts in my life, but I was certainly making up stories as we discussed Mm. in Demons, the podcast episode which we have already recorded. I don't know. I don't actually find that statement... Too confusing. I think it explains a lot about how he makes films.
0: I, I think I, I draw the line of the actual like ghosts and specters walking through his life. That's the part that I'm like, what do you actually mean by that? Like, I guess I, I've never had. Just to your point, I've never had that experience. I totally get though because I have sometimes. This is so embarrassing. Confused a dream I've had with something that's actually happened in my sure. life until it's been pointed out to me. That never that never actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> so.
2: We want to believe our emotional experience of our past is real, and it is in the way it infect, uh, impacts us. But if someone were data collecting and actually creating a ledger of the mm-hmm. individual events that happen temporally, physically in our lives, they would never correlate to our experience of them. It's just impossible. Mm. I mean, films like this, and we watched another one, I mean, these are interesting narratives. Uh, when you're telling a story through the eyes of how it's remembered, reality isn't real.
0: Next you're going to tell me that money isn't real and then I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Money
2: is not real. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of socialist books now,
0: right? Oh boy, so. you my dad should talk then. <laughs> That's Can you I imagine?
2: Heard. We should get him on the podcast. He'll just no. be yelling. Just
0: yelling. <laughs> You call me bastard.
1: I want to be buried in a pit of dollar bills.
0: We've talked about this. He begins writing this project. He initially conceives of it as more of a miniseries to be his final thing, he is encouraged to make of this movie as a way to entice people to watch the miniseries. His childhood does have some similarities to the movie. His own father was a Lutheran pastor who often disciplined Ingmar over not telling the truth. Uh, he had a great relationship with his sister, and he grew up in what would have been an upper middle class household as depicted in the movie, which to me looks like super rich people, but he calls it upper <laughs> middle class. So,
2: well, in Sweden, they still have a king, so it's not related mm-hmm. by blood to royalty. So upper middle class is the aristocracy, right?
0: Dave, get ready, because you have to pat yourself on the back as Max von Sydow was originally cast as the bishop. He yes. was cast, supposed to be How, in this movie. It would have
2: been so creepy, because he was a creepy have been man.
0: So weird. <laughs> But because production took a little bit longer to get up and running, uh, he had become a bit of a bigger name in the West. So his asking price went up and uh, a Swedish production could not afford him anymore. Mm. So they had to go on to uh, the person who was actually cast Jan. As for this production element, a full six months were taken to envision sets and costumes, which is a pretty long time before even photography began. The sets are beautiful, right? Yeah.
2: They really are. Yeah, a lot of the locations realized.
0: are these quasi-replicas from Bergman's own childhood. So, like, the uh, his grandmother's house is basically a replication of what that is. His uh, first living quarters with the bishop, I think, are also based on reality. The film itself took seven months to shoot. Wow. Which may not sound like that long by today's that's standards, but that's, like, astronomically long for the early 80s. Yeah, yeah, for this crazy. type of movie.
2: Especially when you have kid actors and stuff, that's... That's yeah. a grind,
0: man. Apparently, I, I think this is on Criterion as well. But apparently, there's an entire documentary about the making of this movie oh. that you can watch, and kind of how we saw with Fitzcarraldo—not that extreme, but like there were fights on set, people almost killed. Bergman got super sick with influenza, so someone else had to uh, direct Sit a mature. few of the scenes because he just could not go to set.
2: Actually, that's—I forgot we what. I forgot about Fitzcarraldo. We should be comparing this to Fitzcarraldo, honestly. <laughs> there are some through lines. Oh, oh yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Mm.
0: Like when Alexander has to pull that huge boat over a hill.
2: <laughs> it's uh... <laughs> just the, how it's drawn out and respected as a film, but mm-hmm. not as a good story. I don't know.
0: So critics at the time in Sweden were very positive on it. Mm-hmm. North America was, I would say, positive to mixed. Like it was like overflowing with praise, let's put it that way, but people liked it. However, having there now been 40 years since this movie came out, it routinely does very well in the sight and sound poll, which by the way, the 2022, because it comes out every 10 years, the 2022 poll has to be coming out here like very soon.
2: I don't even, yeah.
0: And I'm excited to see how the things have shifted. As of this recording, the latest one was the 2012 uh, sight and sound poll where it came in at 84th. So it was the 84th movie on their list. In 2002... Sight and Sound invited some critics to rate the best films of the last 25 years. So you have to do the math there. So in 2002, 25 years before that, out of those years, where would you put it? And it came in third, uh, wow, back in 2002. That's high. This film, like we said, the film was released first. The miniseries would come out the next year. It would be the most successful film Bergman released in Sweden, according to box office technically it did not get released into North America until 1983. As we said, it came out in Sweden December 1982, a couple months later it actually gets released into America. So it was not eligible for the 1982 Academy Awards. But it was eligible for the 1983 Academy Awards where it was nominated for six. Back then, if a film was submitted into the best at the time called foreign language film, it could not be nominated for Best Picture, which is probably why it was not nominated for Best Picture, but nominated for six other awards, because it was nominated for Best Director, Best Writer, or Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Art Direction, and then Best Foreign Language Film. So it was six. Up until, I don't know if it was Parasite or if there was another one, maybe Crouching Tiger. Anyways, it was the most nominations for any foreign language film For many, many years, like nothing had ever come close to having six nominations from a movie not made in North America. It did very well as well out of those six nominations it won four which was best foreign language film best art direction best costume design best cinematography bergman lost best director that year to james l brooks for terms of endearment which also won best picture bergman would continue to work he wrote a few more screenplays directed for some television um movies this would be his last theatrically released movie uh when he passed away in 2007, there was a postage stamp in Sweden that depicted him directing Fanny Alexander. That was released. That was in commemoration Very of Very
2: specific for such a small picture. I mean, how will we yes. know what I, is I, I, I
0: thought the same thing. It's like, how do you depict him directing but anyways, a specific film? Besides yeah. that, to this day, to this day in 2022, a popular Christmas gift in Sweden is Christmas Ornaments that are modeled after Fanny Alexander. It has that cultural relevance in Sweden at the very least. As far as modern directors, the biggest thing is like Bong Joon-ho of Parasite fame is like in love with this movie. It's like his, one of his favorite things. And actually once he said that, it's like, oh, I can actually kind of see how that tracks. There's a bunch of scenes in a bunch of his movies that like, that's the you can see how Fanny Alexander influenced him. That's the uh, very short, <laughs> The
2: theatrical cut of
0: your history. Oh, the theatrical cut <laughs> of this movie. Yeah.
1: I'll wait for the miniseries that will be released next year.
0: Critically praised. Did Wealthy well Award shows is considered one of the best movies of all time. That is mm-hmm. basically where we stand.
2: Yeah, high praise. High praise. I'm a little underwhelmed by it. Uh, you know, my asterisk kind of like when we talked talking about uh, Blade Runner's theatrical cut. It's not a bad movie. It's a great movie. No. There's nothing no. wrong with it.
0: But I think my score will reflect my disappointment. Well, I was fully coming in here thinking you were going to give this a one. So No, 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 like, no. No, I, no, know. Know.
2: No, uh, I think... F- I think my problem is that, you know, when a movie comes up that you haven't seen, that's billed as one of the great, you know, let's say top 250. And and we've seen this in our top 250 reviews Mm -hmm. that once in a while something come up and you just have to scratch your head. And it's perhaps the context, et cetera. In this case, it's not the movie itself. It's this version that I just couldn't um, buy
0: into. Just another thing on on where like the top 250 lists get placed. Specifically for Letterboxd, it needs to have... Five thousand ratings before it'll actually get placed, right? However, if you are like a diehard Bergman fan, right, I'm sure there's five thousand diehard Bergman fans. Sure, That's yeah. enough to bump up the rating super high, yeah, yeah. Even if a lot of other people have not seen the movie, so I always like to see like how many people have actually rated this film. You spend a lot of time on Letterboxd. Uh, there's a couple things I just want to mention here. There is this time of like weirdly offbeat, again, what I call funny moments. Which is, there's two of them. You know, when they go, they they first go to the bishop's house and they're kind of introducing them to all the like the weird Mm -hmm. people that are there. Mm -hmm. And then they go upstairs and there's the weird man, baby thing uh aunt i think right? or oh, yeah, si- it's yeah, a yeah. sister i think right? yeah, yeah the, the six who, sister who it is or whatever yeah. but like a weird introduction into into that character yeah. and and literally like a, a maid pops up in the screen and goes like horizontal it's like don't be afraid children and then like drops out of frame again and it's so weird on off i think, that i laughed out loud because like i was really not expecting this woman to pop out in front of me but in this, this like this costume this drama.
2: you know when you have eccentric moments like that i want them interspersed through the whole film so i get a Mm. tone so if we're really watching this through alexander's eyes and every time that there is some odd uh, action by an adult, and they do this sort of cut, like in *Demons*, which we talked about mm-hmm. last which week. We talked about already, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At least there's this sort of uh, rhythm to it. But this movie theatrical version kind of just throws shit on the screen once in a while,
0: and you're like, "Whoa, whoa!" I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I know you keep saying that. I was, I, I had enough here to be fully invested in it. I will, I will admit, could, could like gun to my head right now <laughs> explain to you what happens in the final thirty minutes. No, not a chance. No. no. But there's enough there. That makes me want to like ruminate on it, go back to it, like revisit this to like dig out those pieces a little bit more. I think to compare this to another film that was on the top 250 of Letterboxd that we kind of talked at the beginning of this year, Tokyo Story, Mm. which I have to always reiterate to people is a film that I enjoyed. I just didn't love that film. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it was not something that I really super connected with. But there's a lot of things that say about like grief. And like aging parents and like changing nature of families in that movie. That is like the melancholy movie. Like that is a movie that has oppressive sadness that is running through the entire thing. And with this at least what I found was that there were those reprieves of magical realism. I have said this before. I am more... One of my kind of pieces of catnip for stories is the coming of age story. So like, this is a, like a perfect example of that. And it uh, just worked for me basically on every single level. Like I just wanted to be like, I am the person now was like, I would watch two hours more of this movie. And now I do want to explore this uh, mini series version because of the performances, because of the cinematography uh, and because of the story. I think the story is, is well told. And just like a, a Charles Dickens novel, it does need to be over a thousand pages long. <laughs>
2: Uh, there are, I don't know, yeah, at least three separate narratives. I mean, they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's a great callback too to Tokyo Story. I mean, we caught a little bit of heat on that. I think the idea of a cinephile who wants an intellectual amalgam of narratives, you know, cinematography, revolutionary techniques, avant-garde acting, you can dissect films like this one, Fanny and Alexander Alexander or Tokyo Story and talk about how there are so many important moments in them. But as a semi-casual viewer, like when you brought up Tokyo Story, I agree. I was like, there's nothing wrong with the movie. <laughs> it's a good movie. It's just, should this be like the top five movies ever made in the history of mankind? Like that's... Yeah,
0: it, That is the movie that consistently ranks in the top 10 yeah. on the Sight and sound like poll. That's so. pretty
2: crazy, right? This film too, if someone said, oh, Fanny Alexander is a top 10 movie of all time, I can understand fans of Bergman. And his work saying, yeah, it should be. And I can also understand me saying it ought not to be even in the hundred. Because as great as it is, there are much more impactful and entertaining films that I've watched in my life. Fagin think-
0: Alexander is the Neil Pert. <laughs> Of the Honestly, world well, Don't
2: you get that feeling when we get some heat from fans, right? That we're just missing the point? I
0: think it's much <laughs> more weirder when we get the heat for things like uh, Wild Rovers or something. <laughs> best movie. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking Exanishing about? A vanishing point. It's not even like the best Blake Edwards movie. How, how would you <laughs> even rank this as one of the best movies of all time? Oh, man. <laughs> okay. So, I, there's two last things. One of the things I loved about the first part, that first, I don't know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, is that Bergman has this uh, repeated... Thing that he does of like the smash cut where there's something like wilding, this crazy like is he like the farting scene or like the bed falling apart because they're having sex scene, and then smash cuts to them like solemnly eating, and you just hear like the scratching of the cutlery, like nobody is talking, and that like hard cut miserable while you're here with the family and then like wild and crazy people when they're not it really worked for me i thought it was like a really like really comedic like counterpoint yeah I, I was slapping my knee too i was slapping my knee <laughs> i was slapping my knee both of them in fact this is double slapping <gasps> it's gonna winter
2: um... you know, this is swedish humor because you can't go outside and uh mm-hmm. kyle's feeling it Nice feeling apparently
0: it. dave just likes english humor where you just have to do a funny voice and then that's the <laughs> pinnacle of comedy
2: <laughs> sounds more american than are getting punched in the face um
0: the other one it was about praying i thought what was very interesting was that the praying specifically at night like one of the very first scenes you see again is like that like christmas eve or uh, around christmas and the maids come in and they're like Hello be my name thank you to all the people like they're doing kind of frivolously and like yeah. throwing it off and then again coming to the bishop's house they're doing the exact same prayer but now it's very like serious it's like no you have to do this. Exactly right. I thought that was in really effectively as a callback to to the first part to show how serious the bishop really was. And I love, love, love the scene. This is going to be weird to say. I love the scene. I just think it was a very effective scene of him being caned.
2: Yeah, you gotta love a good caning, Kyle. That's uh, no. It was. It's built up really well, and yeah, that not debate, but their interchange is fantastic. And when we watch Alexander struggle with his impertinence but also having to like bend why his I just lie? i could just Fantastic. lie if i wanted to yeah. I, and i and this is the thing like i i've kind of been that kid mm-hmm. i've uh been through similar experiences and i've done things like push as hard as i can until you break and then as soon as you get a moment to push back again <laughs> you mm-hmm. try it one more time because f- fuck it you're already uh you're already down on the ground so i love you know that's the thing like each piece if i'm watching like you said one hour episodes and they're pulled up it's such an inverse of how disney needs to stop making fucking tv shows and just right. edit these things into a 90 minute movie this thing is a three and three and ten minute yeah uh, film and if they now i if i were to watch it as five or six hour long episodes i think it would be better right and as you're kind of remembering i might be able to even connect different scenes a little bit better because it would have had time to uh, root in my brain um
0: digest a bit i also like that standoff scene how it ends because again i think it's punctuated a bit on a joke which is like i'll never go again like i'm never gonna admit to this i'm never gonna change my mind i'm never gonna do this and it's like it pans up as if we're gonna hear like a bunch of wax it's like one's like okay i'm gonna just (laughs) i'm sorry i'm not gonna do this again it's completely religious control after one whack
2: i mean it's just real maybe you haven't been caned i was
0: i was belted actually yeah with like, I mean, a leather belt
2: doesn't that just bring back the idea of uh, what it means to capitulate when you're a kid right it's not what you do as an adult it's not a rational endeavor where you've built a system of debate and you know how you're gonna deal with uh, the authoritarian nature of your accuser you're just in there uh, intuitively and you know what you think is right when it's not working <laughs> what are you gonna do right it's uh, you stand up to the man Yeah, until he hits you the third time and you say, Mm. yeah, fuck it. You're right. Let's move on.
1: We're done here.
0: All right. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. So let's get into critics choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time that this film was released. So Roger Ebert over at the Chicago Sun-Times. I will say I don't know if this particular portion of his review was from 1982, because he did write about it in his, like, great movies list. So I think that part of this has been adapted for the publishing of that book. But regardless, he says, or he wrote, there are fairy tale elements here, but Fanny and Alexander is above all the story of what Alexander understands is really happening. If magic is real, if ghosts can walk, so be it. Bergman has often allowed the supernatural into his films. In another sense, the events in Fanny and Alexander may be seen through the prism of the children's memories, so that half understood and half forgotten events have been reconstructed into a new fable. explains their lives. What's certain, though, is that Bergman somehow glides beyond the mere telling of this story into a kind of hypnotic series of events that have the clarity and fascination of dreams. Rarely have I felt so strongly during a movie that my mind had been shifted into a different kind of reality. The scenes at night in the Jacoby house are as intriguing and mysterious as any I have seen. Quiet and dreamy. And then disturbing when the mad Ishmael calmly and sweetly shows Alexander how everything will be resolved.
2: Good. Good. Oh, God,
0: well, look, dismissive uh, Dave over here.
2: Uh, no, I don't know. We have... Was that Ebert? I was coughing. Yeah, was that, that was yeah. Ebert. Like in any film, especially with Ebert, when you get caught up in it... As we're talking about dragged into the narrative, well, like, why wouldn't he feel so strongly about it?
0: Sure. Uh, Pauline Kale did actually review this movie. She was a bit more mixed on it, I would say. Still positive, but she had a few big things that she uh, was calling out. The unfortunate part is this. There are multiple. When you search Fanny Alexander, Pauline Kale, there are multiple articles and other reviews that reference about how you have to read the Pauline Kale review on this movie. It's so well thought out. You have to read this essay. You have to read this review. I can't find it. I don't know where this <laughs> review is lingering around. I love it. The only thing I can find is a two, three sentence compression of her thoughts on it. So Gotta buy
2: a book, girl. We're going to have to buy the yeah, book. Yeah, I guess I
0: have to go buy your book. This is like a 10,000 word essay compressed into three sentences. So try and make sense of this, Dave. Ingmar Bergman's festive and full-bodied dream play, a vision of family life as a gifted boy might have perfected it, replacing his strict family with a generous-hearted theatrical clan. In what Bergman said would be his final movie, his obsessions are turned into stories. He makes the ribboned present of his Freudian gothic dream world. The movie is scaled big. It runs for 3 hours and 10 minutes. And it's lovingly placed warm gingerbreading is enormously enjoyable, but the conventionality of the thinking of the film is rather shocking. It's as if Bergman's neuroses had been tormenting him for so long that he cut them off and went smirting back to Victorian health and domesticity. Mm, she didn't like the ending. Yeah. I think that's what it means is like she's engaged and then she totally falls off the wagon <laughs> at the end. And she,
2: at this point, we know that she's become quite cynical uh, and that's a, that's an interesting point. I, I, like I said, At the end, when the clown does this big, felt like five-minute speech, trying to bookend this thing, I stopped listening. I just didn't care. And I think Mm -hmm. that perhaps she felt a similar thought that we have... Watch this family break apart. We've seen these kids tortured. And now because they come back into an opulent household, everybody's going to be happy again. It's bullshit, right? That's Mm -hmm. like a Swedish Hollywood ending. And I feel like maybe the miniseries will deal with it better. Because even that last sequence, there's a couple conversations, I think, with that buffoon. And I mean, the... Letch brothers never in the film again but they have a couple of uh last scenes with some of the adults that seem so truncated and out of right. nowhere but i think they're trying to end these storylines that are probably a little bit more present in a longer version of this film but they come out of nowhere man so i can understand if i'm you know it is only a sentence but what it makes me feel like she's saying is that it's ultimately a little disappointing that we've been on this huge odyssey and in the end was just where we started and nobody mm-hmm. gives a shit about anything right so yeah
0: well, the question we ask every week is, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant?
2: Well, I mean, I'd, I don't know about cultural relevance, but as you brought up, it's definitely culturally relevant in Sweden. Yeah.
0: I, <laughs> but...
2: um, Ingmar Bergman, uh, whether we've seen his films or not, is culturally relevant for anybody who likes historical film. So yeah, does it hold up? I think yes, from the cinematography, the direction, the acting, it's fantastic. It's just I wasn't enamored by the fantasy of it, so... My mm-hmm. score, and the asterisk again, the theatrical cut, I,
0: I'm going to yeah. go to a three. Well, we're, we're not there yet, Dave. We're not there yet.
2: Yeah. Oh, why? why? Don't we do that right away?
0: No. We have to do our call to action first. What's the, the call document, to action? And then we come back. So, I say this. Uh, <laughs> I agree. I think it does hold up. The cultural relevance piece is always a hard one. Yeah, like you said. In stuff. Sweden, yes. Unequivocally, it is. In North America, I would hazard to guess, unless you are into like, international film. Yeah, you probably never even heard of Fanny Alexander.
2: Well, Bong Joo Ho, or whatever his name is, apparently loves it, and he yep. won an Oscar, so.
0: Did. Something <laughs> that Bergman never did. So. <sighs> now that's funny. So we do need to rate this film, Dave, but before we do... That is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave VSthemachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel. We now have a handle, so you can find us with mm. KDVSTM over there. And if you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our letterboxed page, letterbox.com/slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not not usher in the next apocalypse you can go to our patreon page there is a link in the show notes of this episode you can support for as low as a dollar per month something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts and no there's not a podcast player that you hold in your hand it's actually a an app on your device to you go kids to. don't understand there used to be a box for your
2: mp3s there used to be a box that was a phone you didn't mm-hmm. have a computer you'd have to go and sit All down right, at Gramp, a desk uh,
0: okay so Let's get to the rating of this movie, Dave. What are you going to rate, Fanny und Alexandra? It's cathode ray tube, Kyle. Or I guess it would be Fanny und Alexander.
2: Um, what are you going to give it? Yeah, I, I'm going to give it a three. Uh, again, my asterisks. And the more we talk about it, I'm like, should I make time to watch the five hour version? <laughs> uh, it's gonna be, in, it's gonna be in my brain now. So we'll see what happens.
0: Well, I like love this movie. There are some misgivings. I, I do feel like the yeah, the miniseries will probably iron out. Some of those things that didn't completely work, like the final thirty minutes. Like
2: if you're gonna give this a four and a half, what? How, what are you give it a four and a half. And I love it. Give I was it like, when you watch the five-hour version, a five and a half. You're not exactly giving yourself right. so, you're Not giving yourself a lot of wiggle room here.
0: <laughs> so that is going to average to three point seven five, which will round down, which will round down to three point five. It only is going to tie Dave with one other movie, oh. which is Missing. Do you think this is better oh. or worse than Ooh. Missing?
2: I would watch Missing before I watch this again. Hmm. Yeah, Jack Lemon.
0: I think this movie is better than Missing. Yeah. So, how do we want to? Uh, <laughs>
2: break no. Let's stalemate. put it above. I think that this movie has a broader intellectual discourse around it. I think it's prettier. I just found watching Missing was so compelling when we saw it because mm. I, I think as well, I'd never heard of it before, so making me a fan of Jack Lemon. Yeah, Jack Lemon's right? great. Super
0: weird. Uh, Well, it's going to enter into our top 10 here then, Dave. So entering our list at the number nine position is Fanny Alexander, right above missing. right underneath Tootsie. I feel like you should have docked it 0.5 for just having the wrong name.
2: (laughs) Which, which angel is Ishmael? Ishmael Alexander. That would have been a good name for it. That would have been interesting. Right? Because then by the time you meet Ishmael, you're like, of course, of course, this movie
0: should be called. Ishmael, and he would call, and he would say, "Call me Ishmael." I'm just saying. And then a white whale would bust through the side of the wall. We should find out what we're watching here next week. Let me just push this other button here. Oh, Dave, a huge hit in 1982. We get to watch next week mm-hmm. another movie I have never seen though okay. before, uh, but I'm eager to see an officer and a gentleman.
2: Ooh, push-ups in the rain. You're gonna get some. Fresh face Richard Gear.
0: Yeah, and no, Fresh face yeah. Richard Gear. It's pretty good. Louis Gossett. It wins best uh the, the, the song at the Oscars that that year. I'm looking forward to the fact that uh, there is actually no officer that shows up for <laughs> the entire movie. Well. It's just the a gentleman. It's weird. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I would argue the inverse yeah I'm, I'm not sure anybody's quite gentle in this film but from what mm. I remember but
0: okay um well looks like our countdown is just about to run out Dave what do you what do you think is gonna happen here death yeah because it's funny <laughs> right you're Swedish the uh, Swedish funniest <laughs> of death and uh oh I think uh I think we're going home Dave <laughs>
1: I want to be buried in a pit of dollar bills.